in every country. Dreams, you know we can work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge. Traditional skills and modern techniques. Whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer every day. Climb with the ISA. Welcome to the ISA Science of Arboriculture podcast series. This is Tom Smiley at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory with this month's podcast, brought to you by the Bartlett Tree Expert Company, caring for America's trees since 1907. This podcast series offers full-length educational talks by the world's top researchers, educators, and practitioners to keep you up-to-date with developments in the arboriculture industry. Today's talk is by Keith Norton and Robert Urban of ACRT Urban Forestry Training Company on trends and regulations shaping arboricultural training. It was originally presented at the 2015 ISA International Conference in Orlando, Florida. Thank you, Pedro. Saving the best for last. Thanks, everyone, for uh, taking the time to come listen to us talk today. Uh, We're going to be speaking about the the anniversary event that drove the creation of the ANSI Z133 safety standards that we all... um, uh, that apply to all of us in our industry. Uh, We have um, two active members of the Z Safety Committee on the stage with us today, and uh, we will be talking about the the evolution and the history of the standard um, from its creation to its present day. Um, So with that, Keith. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, everybody, for coming today to to hear us speak here. I want to talk a little bit about how this came about. I got a phone call in December, the week right after Christmas. When I was home in Vermont, it was below zero in single-digit temperatures, and Bob Urban asked me if I'd like to go to Orlando to talk about the Z-133. Of course, it didn't take very long for me to say, yeah. And then he said, well, it's going to be in August. So, so here I am a few months later. It's a little bit warmer back in Vermont right now. and. Uh, very happy to be here to join you to talk about a subject that's very close to my heart, the, the Z133 standards and how it came about. Uh, part of that goes back to when I started doing tree work back in the early 1980s. The first person I knew that got killed doing tree work was electrocuted. Um, and back at that time, I had never even heard of the Z133. But later on, as things progressed through the 1980s, I heard of this mystical Z133 document, still hadn't seen it. And I read some articles uh, by Dick Abbott, the founder of ACRT, uh, through ArborAge and Tree Care Industry magazines, and decided I was going to go out to Ohio and take a class with him. That's how I first got involved with this company and first got to see a copy of the Z133, uh, the 1994 edition, and got to learn a little bit about the history of it and how it was created. Turns out the incident that happened that created this, that wasn't very far from where I grew up. It's about an hour away. I grew up in upstate New York. In Johnstown, New York, who was a young fella, 18 years old, by the name of Jeffrey Hug. Uh, he took a summer job doing tree work so he could make some money to go to college that fall. Well, August 17th of 1965, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the caretaker of the estate where Jeff was working stopped to talk with him. And Jeff told him, he said, oh, I've got one more tree I'm going to do today, and I'm going to call it a day, and I'll see you tomorrow. 
The caretaker left. Jeff headed up the tree at about 3.30. The woman next door said she saw a flash of light and something white fall out of a tree. She called the fire department. When they arrived on the scene, they found Jeff dead and under the tree on the ground. And as I recall, it was a 4,800 volt conductor that he came into contact with. And obviously, he didn't go home that day. Well, Jeff's mother, Mrs. Ethelhug, I can just imagine the grief she was going through. She was trying to make sense of why her young son was dead, why an employer would put him in a situation and put him in a tree where he could make contact with a conductor and get killed without any kind of training. And through the efforts of Mrs. Ethelhug, she started writing letters to politicians, to safety organizations, people in the tree care industry. Through her efforts, a group got together in April of 1968 and formed the first Accredited Standards Committee, Z133. Uh, the chair of that committee was a gentleman by the name of Gordon King, and the vice chair was a gentleman by the name of Dick Abbott, who in 2000 will become my boss. Uh, so we've had a history, our company has had a history with the Z133 since its inception. That group got together and they formulated that first set of standards that they approved in July of 1971. After they approved it, it went to the ANSI. ANSI approved it in December of 1972, and the first one went to print. It was 16 pages long. Not a very big document. If we look at our current Z133, the 2012 revision, we have a document here that's about a quarter of an inch thick, 72 pages long with all the annexes and definitions in the back, four and a half times the size of that original document. One of the things I like to talk about with this document is every regulation that we have in this document was written in blood. Somebody paid the ultimate price. Somebody didn't go home. There's also regulations in here due to serious injuries where maybe those people didn't go home that day, but they did get to go home. They did get to go back home to their family. So that's a very important thing. That's one of the things I like to talk about with people. The fact that on August 17th, 1965, Jeffrey Hug did not go home. Now, that's 50 years ago this year. Over the years, we've had several revisions of the Z-133. That original 1972 16-page document was revised in 1979, it stayed at 16 pages. It was revised again in 1982, and again in 1988, to the 1994 standard, the first one I ever got to see, got to put my hands on, again in 2000, 2006, and the current 2012 standard. I mentioned that the first one I ever saw in 1994 standard, when I read through that, I was absolutely amazed at the regulations in there. There's a lot of things in there about not to do certain things, and I thought, I do that every day. It's one of those things where I got away with it. It didn't catch up to me yet. Each time we break a regulation, we're stacking the odds. So sooner or later, it can get us. Back then, I set a goal. I said, eventually, I want to be one of the people on this committee. And for this revision going into the 2017, I was accepted to the Z133 committee, and I'm a voting member. We attend those meetings. We go through accident statistics. We look at what's happening, what we need to change. And that's why I refer to it as an evolving document. 
It's one of the great things about our industry. We have this safety document that evolves with our industry. As new techniques and new equipment come into our field, we can adapt our safety standards. Sorry, five, six, seven years, we get a new standard that's updated and adapted to it, which is, as far as I'm concerned, that's a great thing. I'm very proud to be on that committee and to have been accepted to it. I also serve on two of the subcommittees, the Electrical Hazard Subcommittee and the Crane Use and Arboriculture Committee. A couple of items that I've seen over the years grow drastically in this document. Um, I'm one of those people, I really like to do tree work with cranes, so that part is very close to me also. And I look back to the cranes that we started with in the early 80s compared to the ones that we use nowadays. It's just absolutely amazing. Um, stuff that we can pick now that we would never ever think of picking before. Uh, just amazing. So those are very important to me. So as I said, I talked about some of the things that happened. I talked about Jeffrey Hug. As I travel around the country, it's one of the great things about my job. I get to go all over this country meeting tree workers in numerous different states, and some of them I see out here in the audience today. One of the things when I do a class, I start out and I ask everybody, what's our number one job? And I get a variety of answers to that, but if we think about it, our number one job is going home at the end of the day, going home to our families. We all have somebody to go home to, whether it's our spouse, our children, a significant other, if it's the dog. We all have somebody to go home to. So we need to think about that. There were times I was in a tree and I would think about, I was about to make a certain type of a move. Now I think I read something about this and it didn't end too well. Now I'd rethink the procedure I was gonna do. So I wanna make sure that I went home. Now, we talk about the Z133. There's a lot of OSHA standards that cover our occupation also the Z-133, and states can opt out of that. We have seen some folks here at this convention from some of those states that have different standards. If the states opt out of following these standards, they have to have a set of standards that meet or exceed the OSHA and ANSI standards. It's one of the things we've got involved in this past year where we have found some of these standards that were still in the Stone Age. We still found some states that still allow for and actually call for climbers to use hemp rope. Stuff that's just amazing. So we've been working, trying to work with some of these places to get some of these regulations changed. And also I would like to talk, well as I'm here, I'll be talking with Joe Jimmo and we're gonna talk about some of the things that have changed over the courses of these years and through the revisions of the Z-133. And I actually got to meet Joe Jimmo years ago, back in the 1990s as a student at ACRT. While I was out there taking a class, Joe was also there, also there as a student. And I recently dug up some photos of that. We found some that were Joe and I doing some crane removals in a class. It was I think cool we lost those, that. Keith. Yeah. <laughs> so we're gonna talk about some of the changes that have been made. Um, some of the stuff with our climbing gear. When we look back at these standards, and I like to get these standards out every now and then and read through the old ones to see what's changed. An interesting thing, in 1979 revision, they talked about the snaps that we were gonna use for climbing. They simply said your snap had to be automatic closing. That was it. Was no weight rating. Could be a dog snap, as long as it was automatic closing. Well, 
That's true, and we brought one of those along. There's actually, we're going to, it's up here, and surely some of you have seen the, uh, the old spring-loaded gates on those snaps, which was the item in the day. Uh, but currently, in the 2012, uh, the readings uh, of the Z uh, read that they got to be auto-closing, basically auto-closing and locking, self-closing and locking. So uh, there was a big, significant change between those two, and it took some time to get to that point, but we did, realizing in some cases in climbing that these gates do come open. Uh, so they obviously made the transition, which was a good thing. I think for most climbers in the room realized that. So that was a really good transition. Some of the things we're talking about is probably very well aware of, but they did take some time to move forward and, and push into uh, the new standard. So we did pick out these items just randomly uh, when looking from the 79 revision to the current one. As I mentioned earlier, I talked about there are some states out there that still talk about climbing on hemp rope. Now there's probably a lot of people in here that have never heard of the term manila rope. Never heard of those or seen it. And uh, I actually carry a piece, I keep a piece out at our shop so that people can see that. They have no clue of what we talk about. 1979 standard said your climbing line had to be a half inch diameter, first grade, three or four strand manila rope with a minimum breaking strength of 2,385 pounds. And it was a natural fiber rope. I brought a piece of it with me and you can see this stuff is just a mess. But that's manila rope. It's actually what I first started climbing on when I started. Back in the early 1980s, gentleman I was working for, Dragon Brush, one day told me, are you ready to go up? Okay. And this is what he gave me, sent me up in a tree, it was a piece of this stuff. It was the best we had back then. Well, right about then, new technology was taken off in this field. Yeah, it was, and going from the 79 to the 94, uh, looking at the revisions in the 94, where it's worded that the rope has to be a synthetic fiber. Uh, make in a minimum of a half inch or 12 millimeter, the 5,400 pound tensile strength. It also went on to talk about the maximum elasticity of a 7%, uh, not to exceed 7% uh, elasticity. So uh, there was, that's a great trend. And we looked down there on the floor at the expo and certainly see the different types of ropes that are down there. And they are absolute, uh, it's an absolute wonderful transition from this to, to, to the current day and moving forward. I certainly don't want to turn in my calamine climbing line for going back to this, that's for sure. Another one of the items that it called for in the 1979 Z133, it talked about that we had to have a saddle, a tree climbing saddle, that met certain OSHA standards. But it's also said we could climb on a saddle made out of a double bowling on a bite. Now, that term, I haven't heard anybody use the term double bowling on a bite since the 1990s. We simply say a bowling on a bite now. For those who don't know what it is, it's right there. This is what they used to climb on. That's what tree work started on, sitting in a half inch rope. And there's a really cool video out there. You can get it through uh, Tree Care Industry Association. It's called The Legends of Arboriculture. It's a pretty good video. It's got the founder of our company, Dick Abbott, in there. But there's one gentleman in there, and he talks about climbing on this in the 1930s. And he said, yeah, after about a year and a half, you got calloused up and you got used to it. Think about that. Calluses on my butt. Um, no thanks. 
Because you sat in these two rings. That's simply what you did. So what tree climbers would do is they would try to go to a hardware store and find an old wooden barrel. Those old wooden barrels, each one of those wooden slats, that's a barrel stay, that curve. They would get those pieces of wood, drill a hole in each end, fish it through the rope, so that when they tied this, it became a seat to set in. You know what? We see that now. You ever hear when people talk about things going 360 degrees? In the 1990s, we started getting saddles with a bosun seat in them. I climb on one of those, one of the weaver saddles with that fiberboard bosun seat in it. It's kind of like we've done a 360 degrees there. It certainly beats sitting on a half-inch rope. If you've never tried this, I'd recommend it. Just to try it. I've used this. I've gone up in trees with it. I've even tied the 2012 compliant version of this with a pair of alpine butterflies so that I could hook a lanyard to it. But again, I'm glad I don't climb on this every day. When we look back, we hear about the good old days. Yeah, I think I would have chosen another occupation back then. I'm certainly glad I came into this in the 1980s and worked at this up through the 2000s. And then again, moving into 12, 2012 in the language, saddle's got to be approved by the manufacturer for use within the tree care industry. So again, going from this not so long ago, uh, to where we are currently, going from butt strap saddles to versatile saddles, saddles with battens, uh, sliding double D, sliding side uh, cougars, all the different types of saddles that are out there for the different type of applications that a climber may uh, be uh, faced with or charged with as far as a task to perform. Uh, all make their lives more comfortable, their, their, their operation much more comfortable. Uh, so you have a much, more ha a much happier climber, uh, <laughs> and more comfortable certainly than sitting on a rope. Uh, and I don't know, maybe topping a tree. Uh, that's another story. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, so yeah. So moving, looking at the twelve and all the products that are out there that uh, not so long ago, when this is myself uh, actually used as well uh, for time and time, but more of an experimental just to see if I could do it. I did it and I endured it. And I think I bit a couple of uh, teeth out of my head. Uh, but uh, certainly a great. We've evolved very, very much with the the type of tools that we have out. And these saddles and stuff, when you think about that, I said our number one job is going home at the end of the day. Another part of that is to go home and have enough energy left to enjoy life, to enjoy your families. That's where having some of this new modern stuff also comes into play. So we can take better care of our bodies, go home not as tired, not as worn out. And again, if we're not as tired, we're not as worn out, less chance of us having accidents. Now also in the 1979 standard, it talked about that we could drop start chainsaws. So we could drop start a chainsaw as long as it was under 15 pounds. And it said we could drop start a saw that was over 15 pounds as long as we did it out of a bucket truck and that everybody was clear below us. Now, we think, you know, 15 pounds, well, that's, that doesn't seem significant. Well, as a collector of old saws and stuff, I have some saws from the 1950s that are in excess of 50 pounds. So we certainly weren't drop starting those or the gentlemen that ran those, the people that ran them back in those days didn't. But 1979, it said we could drop start chainsaws. And again, we could drop start that one bigger than 15 pounds out of the bucket truck. Depending on the type of industry you're in, I know in the line clearance industry, which I've got most of my career back in, some of the most challenging habits to break uh, that uh, individuals have are chainsaw, during chainsaw use. 
Uh, so drop starting has certainly been a challenge in our industry uh, to try to overcome uh, just because of the, the incidents that are involved with just the simple starting of a chainsaw or drop starting a chainsaw. But going into 2000, looking at the word, the language in the 2000 standard, drop starting a chainsaw on the ground shall be prohibited. Drop starting saws over 15 pounds is permitted outside of the basket of an aerial lift, just so long as you make sure the ground's clear before, uh, below the platform. So there was still language that found it acceptable uh, during the 2000 revision of that publication that still recognized drop starting. There had to be a need for drop starting. So, and onward, uh, the, uh, the practice went on. So it was that much more of a struggle for our industry to continue to get control of these habits when, you know, we, we were still struggling with trying to pass a way of doing it. Finally, moving on. One of the things we also found right around that same time, saw manufacturers in the late 1990s started putting a decompressor in there. That compression release. Press that little button, made the saw easier to pull over, made it easier to start. Less wear and tear. That if anybody ever started some of those bigger saws that didn't have that and got that kickback, yanked back on your shoulders, I think we still have a brand, pretty much brand new 288 Husqvarna sitting out in the shed just because it was always pulling back on the arm. So it went on a shelf and it still sits there. Uh, but in 2006, once again, the standard changed. At that point, it said drop starting the chainsaws shall be prohibited meaning we cannot drop start the chainsaws at all anymore. Interesting enough, there's an OSHA standard out there that says we can drop start saws, gasoline powered saws, other than chainsaws. So if any of you know what those saws are, I'd be really interested in finding out what they are because I've yet to see any other gasoline powered saw that we are using in our industry. But OSHA says if it's other than a chainsaw, we can drop start it. You think about that, how many times do you drop start, or how many times do you start a saw if you were drop starting a chainsaw, the ergonomic effect on, on an individual. When drop starting a saw, that type of energy that you're applying to your body, that re repetition over and over, how many times a day, how many times a week, a month, over and over through the years uh, that it happens through a decade, some two decades, three decades. Um, but uh, it, there's a lot that, that dealt with in the... Uh, and the, the people moving out of this industry that are, that are uh, working themselves out of the industry as far as retirement, uh, such as myself, not far from, but the hips, the knees, the elbows, the shoulders, the neck aren't what they used to be in the back. I forget that. I think toes, fingers, yeah. the cold days starting themselves without that decompression valve. So the evolving of the Z133 to this point up to that 2006 where they finally, you know, the consensus from the group was to say, you know, there, there, there's no, really no need to do this. And if you think about that, Joe kind of touched on it. How many times in the course of a day do you start your saw? How many times in a week? How many times in a month? How many times in a year? How many times in a decade? And as Joe mentioned, two decades, three decades. It's repetitive motion injury. It's rotator cuff injuries is what we see a lot of tree workers having that are attributed to the drop starting of the chainsaw. And Joe also mentioned it, it's a habit. Well, in 1980, first time I was start, taught to start a saw, I was taught to drop start the saw. That was the acceptable practice back then. It's a hard habit to break. It's a habit that I still every now and then, you know, if I'm working on something at home, I grab that saw and there's that brief second where I go to 
drop start it. I have to think about it. I don't need to do this anymore. I got that little button. I can press that in. I can hold that saw and fire it up. I don't have to put my shoulders through that. So sometimes it just takes the conscious effort. Uh, one of the things on that in late 2000s, 2009, when my son returned from Iraq, he came to help us on some storm damage work we went to do. We were taking down a sugar maple up in Vermont that had been damaged. Started a saw up and I turned around. There's my son going like this. What? You should just drop started a saw. No, I didn't. <laughs> yeah, you did. It's one of those habits. It's hard to break, but we need to conscientiously work on it to break that habit. And actually, the first person I ever saw get cut by a chainsaw was cut when he drop started the saw. It fired and he came back and ran it across his leg. Now, in our standards, one of the things we found in there talked about having to set the chain break if the saw was so equipped when you started it. And that was back in the 1979. And it was actually wasn't in the wording of the Z133 until 2012 that the wording changed to where we had to use chainsaws with chain breaks for arbicultural operations. So just a few years ago before that finally got worded in there. Actually, today I think you'd be pretty hard-pressed to go out and find a saw at a dealership without it. I know not too long ago I saw some homeowner saws being sold. It was just a guard. looked like a chain break, but if you looked, it was just a guard bolted on. But I don't even know if you can find those anymore. So it was an interesting thing that we found. Yeah, it's true. There's, I mean, there, there are still some saws out there that you see that employees try to bring aboard as their chainsaws to use. <laughs> And you'll find that they have, a, well, Craftsman or some of the old the stores that Keith was referring to that are non-industrial st uh, style type saws. Uh, and OSHA actually had language that you were referring to that went back, I think, in the 80s, where they said if the saw was produced before a certain date in the 80s, it was acceptable to use if it didn't have a break. So it was interesting that that language existed in the 1910-269, and it took some years, but the Z133 finally pushing advances. So in a lot of ways, the Z133, how it's evolved, has really pushed ahead of OSHA uh, in their 1910-269 standard. So in a lot of ways, it, it's become a great document how it's evolved in that regard. In 1994, there's a part here that I'm looking at, and I'm just thinking, who in here owns, would own, and maybe even still use, a two-person chainsaw? <laughs> Does anybody have one of those? Yes, one. I do have one. I'm, like I say, I have a lot of old chainsaws that I've collected over the years. Um, what happened was, uh, or well, would have been late 1990s. Uh, we had a, we were running a stock car at our local tracks, and one of our sponsors stopped by and happened to notice some of the old chainsaws that I had up in the garage shelf. And he called me up one day. He said, "Stop up." He says, "I got something for you." Very fortunately, when I stopped at his yard, that I had somebody with me. He says, if you go down in the back of the yard, he says, you're going to find a blue Chevy van. He goes, there's a chainsaw in there you can have. So I walked out. We found this Mercury two-man chainsaw, the old float bowl, big like bicycle handlebars on the end. And when I talked about the good old days, we were in pretty good shape at that point, climbing every day. Two of us had all we could do to carry that saw a quarter mile out of there and put it in the back of the chip truck. That thing was so heavy. So, One thing I can't say, I can really hand it to those guys, those folks that ran that stuff back then. 
And, uh, and again, glad I'm not running those today. So in 1979, another one that was in here said, no one except the operator shall be within 10 foot of the cutting head of a brush saw. Goes back to some of that 10 foot rule, staying away from the saw, keeping clear of it. And that's changed now. That has changed. Uh, if you look at 2012, uh, chainsaw engines shall be started and operated only when other arborists and workers are clear of the chainsaw. So that's how the language evolved. Instead of using a 10-foot buffer between the operator and in other individuals, uh, the, the group opted as a consensus to, to use the language uh, that would read uh, that prior to starting the saw that all personnel shall be clear of the chainsaw, uh, because it was too difficult, of a, it was too much of a challenge to try to use the language like a 10-foot rule. Uh, there just seemed to have been a little bit of struggling and consensus on it. So ultimately, it came down to, to make certain that all people, uh, the operator were certain that all personnel were clear of the chainsaw prior to starting, which is not a bad, not a bad thing. All too often, uh, I don't know how many times myself observed crews at the back of a tailgate uh, in the job in the morning, first thing in the morning, everybody's firing up their chainsaw within our arm's reach of each other uh, just to warm them up. Uh, not that there was a history of a lot of bad things happening when that was going on, but certainly the exposure was there, the potential was there. Uh, so it was, it's a good thing to this point up into 2012. Uh, again, we have the language now to make certain that all people stand clear. And certainly, hopefully, one would interpret that as they're out of range, striking range of the saw. And another thing about the Z133 is that it is a minimum set of standards. As a company, as an employer, you can go over above and beyond this. So if you're at your company, you would like to keep a 10-foot rule in there. There's nothing that says you can't. You can require your employees to stay 10 foot apart, running saws with each other. Surprisingly enough, 1994 standard actually still called for people to yell a warning of timber before cutting limbs from trees. I don't know if ever in my career I've ever yelled timber, uh, but it was still in the 1994 standard. I think as long as I can remember it was headache, or if somebody started the saw, you heard the saw start, you were to get out from under them. But that's changed too. There is. There's a uh, back and forth now. We use a communication, typically language like an audible warning sounded from aloft. Uh, some of the language that you'll find in the Z, uh, that prior to dropping limbs from aloft, that there should be an there shall be audible warning and there shall be a response, such as all clear. Typically, it's usually though headache or get the out of the way or something like that. Uh, usually here's something that the crews do communicate well with each other and unfortunately it's still a struggle and one of the high frequency types of in injuries in our industries are struck bys and usually in some cases from an aerial lift from somebody getting somebody below getting struck or uh, somebody on the ground underneath during tree work uh, manual operations so it, I'm glad that, and again the evolving of the the standard to be a little bit more precise when talking about you know, the timber, as we were talking earlier, I remember that in old movies. Did they really even say that in a real logging operation? Uh, I'm not sure, because I, that more like in Keith's time, not mine. But anyway, <laughs> moving on. 
So the communication has become a big thing. It's been referenced in the Z-133, the command and the response. That's a new part of our industry that's really taken off right now. Uh, you go out here on the trade flow shore, floor and you'll see some of these communication devices out there. A lot of these companies are actually designing some of these items right after our industry. Stuff to fit into hard hats so we can just speak and the other person can hear us. So we don't have to yell. We don't have to yell over the noise of our equipment. Which is another great thing because one of the things the Z133 says says if we're going to be working, if we're going to be exposed to noise levels over 85 decibels, we need to wear hearing protection. Boy, I wish I'd thought of that back in the 1980s. Huh? Yeah, exactly. So when we think about that, now anybody here carry a decibel meter? Actually, that's a question that nobody ever raised their hand for years and years and years. And about a year and a half ago, I had a group of people raise their hands and said yes. And I was amazed. I said, hey, you invested into a decibel meter? And they said no. It's a free app you can put on your phone. Very interesting. So you can get a free app if you are cell phone literate and can. App savvy. Yeah, app savvy. Um, I'm not so cell phone literate. I just actually learned how to take a selfie. So uh, I suppose I'll get there someday. Um, but you can put an app on there so you can have that decibel meter. Good rule of thumb. You're standing three foot apart. Now, a little closer than we are right here. If you've got to raise your voice to talk to the person next to you, you should be wearing hearing protection. And again, it's something I wish I'd started using way back in the 1980s. I mentioned about our number one job, going home every day. I said another two part of that was going home and enjoying life. Well, right now, at this stage of my life, it's when I pay for that hearing. When I'm on the telephone and my three-year-old grandson's on there and I'm struggling to hear what he's saying because he's quiet, I really wish I'd used hearing protection. So some interesting things that are there with this stuff that we have today. In 1979, there was language in a Z that read, all ignition keys shall be removed when the equipment, when the equipment is left unattended to prevent unauthorized starting of the equipment. And this is something sometimes I think in, in our industry we still see where large amounts of equipment is parked. Certain sometimes you find keys left in ignitions. Do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, yeah, actually I've got some stories on that. That was what insurance companies used to refer at to as an attractive nuisance. And typically we would think of that about children being around the equipment. We leave the job for the end of the day, we leave some equipment there. Kids go outside, ooh, look at this thing. Got an engine on it. Ooh, there's a key, we're gonna turn it. But it's not always the children. Now, we had a situation in the early 2000s uh, we were doing a job. I've been doing work for this woman since the 1980s. And at this point in time, she was probably 70 years old in her early 70s. We were there to take some trees down. It was going to be a two-day project. We wrapped up at the end of the first day. We left our brush banded on her yard, took the key out, just as the standard says, and we left. When we came back the next morning, well, Mrs. Waite came out of the house, and here she comes, running over to the truck. She got her fingers are going like this. Great big smile on her face. And she comes up to me and she says, I can start your wood chipper. And I looked at her and said, really? And she goes, did you know that your wood chipper has a John Deere engine on it? And I was like, yeah, I ordered it that way. And she goes, well, I can start it. She goes, when you guys left yesterday, she goes, I went out there and was looking it all over. She goes, and I saw it said John Deere. She goes, and I got thinking, 
I've got a John Deere tractor that I mow my lawn with. She goes, and I went in the house, and she goes, I got my keys, and she holds up her key ring, and she goes, and I took the key out and put it in your chipper, and it'll start your chipper. Because John Deere, those keys are universal. Something at that point in time I didn't realize. So the key to her John Deere tractor would start our chipper. Now whether or not she would have known to press the Murphy switch button in or not, I don't know. But she did come up from a farming background, so maybe she could have got it started. But it certainly did open my eyes up a little bit on well, leaving stuff around. There are some states that have in their regulations that if you leave equipment, well, your equipment is to have a locking cover over the ignition key, which to me is a great thing. I think most of the ones we saw on the trade show floor did have those on them now. So I think that brush bandit was in 1998, so back then it didn't have it. There's something to be aware of. Another thing that was in 1979, it said that our bucket trucks and our booms, our aerial lift platforms, had to have an anchor point on them to which we could secure a lanyard for our body belt. Now back then, what we would wear was simply the body belt. That three inch body belt would come around, had a floating D-ring, we had a little short lanyard. You'd clip it. I think some of the first high rangers I ran, it was actually a ring on the basket you clipped to. Then they started coming through where you had your ring on your boom. That was a good idea. Remember my predecessor used to have a saying, he said that booms fall off of buckets. You know, the baskets fall off of the booms, and they do. Booms fall off a truck. Well, if you happen to be in that basket and the basket falls off the boom and you're hooked to the basket, well, you're going to the ground with it. So we started seeing a shift where stuff was moved over to the boom or on the side mounts for it. A lot of that has changed. In 2012, they talk about the anchor important on a bucket now, meaning the A92 standard, uh, which is a five, minimum 5,000 pounds. Also, it makes reference to full body harness uh, and body belt, with a, or full body harness with shock absorbing lanyard and a body belt. Uh, and since then, uh, if you've paid uh, much attention or had much involvement with the 1910-269, that's all changed. Uh, so this next revision, uh, the next meeting that we have in Baltimore in October, uh, there's going to be discussion on how that's going to be addressed. Uh, so that's going to be, there's going to be some significant changes in the 17, but uh, that, that's kind of the language for 2012. Uh, when, when, you, when you look at that statement regarding body belts only, going from body belts only to body belts, full body harnesses and shock absorbing lanyards. One of the things, if you're ever bored one day, it's a rainy day and you're inside, Google aerial lift failure. Bucket truck falls, bucket truck tips over. Pretty amazing in the course of a year how many of them happen. Uh, through the course of one year of doing training, I, just in people I came in contact with, there were five bucket truck failures with booms splitting, baskets coming off, or trucks going over. One of them, the one crew, gentleman, fortunately, was 25, 30 feet in the air. Whole boom came right off, right at the turret, fell to the ground. Very fortunate. His injuries was a, he tore something in his knee and had a concussion from it. Now, that particular family had 29 bucket trucks in their operation. They took all their trucks out of service. One of the things the owner said to me, he says when they went around, they found the bolts and the turrets. Some of them they could grab with their fingers and turn them, they were loose. Some of them they could grab the bolts and lift them right out. They were sheared off. 
Now, two months before that accident, all their buckets had just been inspected and tested. It was just one of those things that somebody missed. They didn't check those bolts. They didn't check the torques on them. Some of the aerial lift manufacturers want you to check the torque on those bolts every six months. And if you think about the leverage that's on a boom while you're up there, pretty good idea to keep an eye on those things. One of the things, if you look at some of the new buckets, they come through with a paint mark on there now. So at a quick glance in the morning, when you're doing your pre-flight inspection, that paint mark's not lined up, and check that out, see why something's moved. And again, because we want to go home at the end of the day. So in closing, uh, we want to thank everybody. Uh, and, and going forward, just take a minute and think of yourselves and your crews or the people that you work with, people sitting next to you. Just take a minute to think about uh, you know, who all is affected when somebody's injured or don't make it home at the end of the day. Uh, there's much more that could be discussed in regard to the Z as well. It's just a very large, broad topic in a short time to, to review. Uh, and we spent some time going over and doing a history. I think Keith did a wonderful job doing a history on the family of the Z. There are, the Z. There are some things that you can do that he's going to point out in closing. And then This is a form that I found a lot of people don't know about. And the Z-133 committee started putting this in the back of the Zs in 2000. So the 2000 standard, 2006, current 2012 standards. The very last page is a recommendation to the accredited standards committee, Z-133. If there's something you think should be in the Z-133 that's not in here, or there's something in here you think should be changed or reworded, something added to it, you can fill this form out and send it in goes to the secretariat at the ISA. And what they do is they review every single one of these that they get. What happens is they take this form and at first they notify the subcommittee that's affected by it. As a subcommittee, we discuss it. Then at the, that meeting, whether it's our April meeting or October meeting, we discuss it with the entire group to try to come up with an answer. And there's a response to every one of these that gets sent in. So if you send one of these in, you may get a response, well, we don't think that that has warrant to it. We're not going to pursue it. Or you may get, yes, we're going to pursue it. This is what we're looking at doing. Or we've got to look into this further. And we just had one of those where they had to send a letter out to tell a gentleman down here in Florida that we were looking into something more because he had a very valid point. So you do have a say in this standard. Everybody in here has a say in it. You can fill this form out. A lot of people don't realize you can also attend the meetings, sit in on the meetings to see what we discuss. We have those meetings again twice a year. We've got a two-day one coming up in October. Big one, yeah, because we're trying to wrap things up. It's going to go out, should go out early next year for public review. You'll be able to see the changes in it and comment on those. If they come back and everything's gone fine through it, the next revision to this that we hope to see is going to be printed in 2017. So 2017, we'll get that new Z-133. Next revision after that should be 2023. Okay. I'm going to be retiring by then. So got a couple more of these revisions to go through. It'd be interesting to see that 2023 one and compare that one to the original 1972 standard. Thank you, guys. This concludes Keith Norton and Bob Urban's presentation on trends and regulations affecting arboricultural training. 
If you would like to receive CEUs for listening to today's podcast, please visit the ISA online store and select Online CE Quizzes. Thank you for listening to this episode, which is brought to you by the Bartlett Tree Expert Company, caring for America's trees since 1907. Remember to subscribe to this podcast series and join us next time for another episode of Science of Arboriculture. Trees in every country, trees, you know we can work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge. Traditional skills and modern techniques, whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer every day. Climb with the ISA.